Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Noah Charney, and he's just published a book, which I read. Really delighted uh, to read that and have him as a guest. The title of the book is Devil in the Gallery, How Scandal, Shock, and Rivalry Shaped the Art World, published September 15th, 2021. And this is not Noah's first book. He has also written The Art Thief, a novel in 2007. Also, Art and Crime, Exploring the Dark Side of the Art World, 2009. Stealing the Mystic Lamb, the true story of the world's most coveted masterpiece, published 2010. The Thefts of the Mona Lisa, on Stealing the World's Most Famous Painting, 2011. Also, The Art of Forgery, The Minds, Motives, and Methods of Master Forgers, 2015. And also, Art Crime, Terrorists, Tomb Raiders, Forgers, and Thieves, 2016. Uh, Noah Charney holds master's degrees in art history from the Courtauld Institute and the University of Cambridge and a PhD from the University of Ljubljana, I think is pronounced properly. He is the adjunct professor of art history at the American University of Rome, visiting lecturer for Brown University abroad programs, and is the founder of ARCA, the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art, a nonprofit research group on the issues in art crime. And the website is www.artcrimeresearch.org. His work in the field of art crime has been praised in such forums as the New York Times Magazine, Time Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, BBC Radio, National Public Radio, El Pais, Vogue, Vanity Fair, Tatler, among others. He has also appeared on radio and television, including BBC, ITV, CNBC, National Geographic, and NBC, MSNBC, as a presenter and guest expert. He is in constant demand as a lecturer, and he has given popular TED Talks was a finalist for the main TED event and teaches a Guardian Masterclass called How to Write About Art. And his website is his full name, Noah Charney. And again, the title of this book that we're going to talk about is Devil in the Gallery, How Scandal, Shock, and Rivalry Shaped the Art World. So Noah Charney, are you there? How's it going? Thanks for Good. having me. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people, you have a very long CV. For people who may not have heard your name, can you kind of Talk about uh, your career in art and your writings and what led you to write The Devil in the Gallery. Of course, yeah. Well, most people know me as, as the art crime guy, which I'm perfectly happy with because it's a subject that fascinates me. So I'm a professor of art history specializing in art crime, which is a relatively new field of study. Um, and uh, according to some reports, I sort of founded this field of study. Um, it is a combination of art history archaeology, art law, museum studies, security studies, policing, criminology, lots of things combined. It's inherently interdisciplinary. And before I started studying, which is back while I was still a postgraduate student in 2006, 2007, there was relatively little published about this. There were some journalistic accounts of famous thefts in book form. There was almost nothing from an academic perspective. And I actually came about this backwards. I was Okay, if we go back in time, I wanted to be a playwright. This was the, the an original plan, but I was studying art history. And I actually managed to get myself an agent for my plays back when I was still a postgraduate student. And I was studying in London um, at the Corto Institute, which um, is very famous among art historians and other people might not have heard of it. It's, it's a place where you can only study art history. And the agent said, well, plays are all well and good, but if you want to make a career as a writer, you should write a novel. Do you have one? And I said, no, but I'll go and write one. So I wound up going and writing The Art Thief. And I was very lucky because it became an international bestseller. And what coincided with publishing it 
and the promotions that Simon & Schuster put behind the publication, I also was featured in the New York Times Magazine for essentially having founded this field of the study of art crime. And those two things are, you know, it's, it's um, mostly luck that they coincided and that sort of momentum propelled me into a, a, a sort of public figure in this field. And that's what I've been doing um, since then. That's been my primary occupation. I teach uh, and analyze really the history of art crime. So my interest is looking at historical accounts and uh, answering the question of what we can learn from historical accounts that we can apply to contemporary ones. So you, you read aloud actually an old list of, of publications. I think I've published about 15 books now. Oh, wow. Only the first one's a novel. Um, there are a couple academic ones. The academic ones are kind of boring. That's not that exciting. Most of what I do is called trade nonfiction, which are true stories um, that are thoroughly researched um, with an academic angle, but are written in a bestsellerish sort of way. And some of them have been bestsellers um, to try to approach the widest possible audience and introduce them to art crime or art history. So that's sort of the, the quick version. Um, I wound up founding this research group called ARCA that you mentioned. Um, it's the first research group in the world on art crime. And we established the first academic program in the world in this field which is um, a master's level program that we want run every summer in Italy. Um, we established the first academic journal in the field called the Journal of Art Crime. And every summer we run uh, an academic conference in June in Italy. So there are a lot of firsts to try to essentially bring together the relatively few people in the world who focus on this subject. Um, I'm, this, I'm sort of a pop professor. I'm, I, I'm a professor and I, I do teach at university, but I do it only periodically and, and mostly for fun, believe it or not. Um, so what I do mostly is, is outreach to the widest possible audience. So I write um, TED videos, um, I present some television programs, um, I write for popular magazines and newspapers like the Washington Post and the Guardian and whatnot. And I'm trying to, to um, preach to the masses about um, the wonders of art. Um, and sometimes the easiest way to approach it is through true crime stories. Everybody likes true crime. There's a more limited audience that at least thinks that they like art. And so if you can bring them to the art world through true crime or through these intriguing anecdotes um, about uh, people behaving badly, then that's a good, a good way to approach it. And that's really what I did with uh, this latest book of mine, The Devil in the Gallery. It's a look at art history. Um, some of the stories people will be familiar with, but it's looking at three things that we associate as inherently negative scandal, shock, and rivalry. We would think if you apply that to um, most politicians, um, then it could be the ruin of their career. Um, and in most fields, it's bad news, any of the three. But I argue in the art world, it's actually been beneficial both for the course of art and for the careers of many of the artists involved. Right, so you talk about in the introduction, you talk about how even some of these rivalries have created you know, the patrons have played off some of these great artists to compete against each other uh, using art, particularly if I remember it in Italy and some of these some of the people that people know, kind of like uh, Michelangelo, etc., all kind of had this kind of rivalry or, or really kind of aggressive. But uh, can you talk kind of your intro? You actually talk about Caravaggio. Can you talk about him? Because he was really on the edge of really avant garde art for his time, but he was also a rake, right? Well, Caravaggio was really, um, really a bad guy, 
but an amazing artist and absolutely revolutionary. And I start and end the book with his stories because he embodies all three things, scandal, shock, and rivalry. And for our purposes, I distinguish scandal and shock. Scandal is when you do something and people are scandalized by it, but that reaction wasn't your intention. Whereas shock is when you decide, I'm gonna do something that people are gonna be shocked by. And it's a, it has that element of proactivity. And he did both. So yes, he, you're right, he was absolutely the cutting edge circa 1600 in Rome, when Rome was the center of the Western art world. And he was painting in a style that nobody had ever seen before. It had no real precedent. It was far more um, naturalistic, um, more dynamic, more um, dramatic in terms of its lighting than anyone had seen previously. He employed some techniques, and I, I don't want to go too too deep, but just some of the basics that might be of interest to people. There's a technique called chiaroscuro, which is Italian for um, light and darkness, the play of the two. And if you imagine his paintings, picture um, a theater with all the lights off and a spotlight suddenly shines on half of someone's face on stage. That dramatic lighting where you're emerging into light from overall darkness is really dramatic. It's imagined sort of horror movie um, lighting, and that's something that he employed in his religious paintings. He was also a really unpleasant guy. He was very violent. He was a member of gangs. It sounds kind of funny to think of painters in gangs like beating each other up because we think of painters as, as sort of nonviolent types. But um, back in the day, they, they were some bad painters um, and they would fight with each other. He killed somebody in a duel um, and he had to flee Rome. And he spent much of his, uh, the, the latter part of his life on the run. Um, and uh, he led a very violent life. He was sued frequently. He was not somebody you would have wanted to hang out with, but he was creating this astounding art. And unlike most artists who appreciated when people emulated their styles and cultivated followers in terms of he didn't want anyone copying his style. He, he, had he known the terminology, he would have tried to trademark it. Instead, he sued people or threatened people or attacked people who were emulating his style. And he wanted to be absolutely unique. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a situation where he was doing just about the opposite of what we expect artists to do at any point. Um, and he, you know, from the start to the finish, he wouldn't make preparatory drawings. Most central Italian painters would make lots of drawings before they would start painting. And they would often draw directly on a canvas or panel before painting over it. And he did none of this. He would um, turn his brush around and use the back end to incise some basic shapes into the canvas and then just start painting. So even down to the way he applied paint was something new and revolutionary. But he was involved in lots of scandals. He used shock tactics. Um, and he had some serious rivalries, including ones that led to fisticuffs and even a murder. Right. So he was kind. Of, he was definitely uh, a very intriguing person behind the scenes, behind his, his painting. But he also, like, I think he was in contrast to Raphael, this mannerism you talk about, which was the older style and really a distinctly different person. Dead at thirty-eight, but still super influential. But I think he encapsulates your kind of theme of that scandal and shock. And your your first section of the book really details scandal. Can you talk about kind of some of these, how influential really art is on the culture? And for example, you use uh, Picasso's Guernica. Can you talk about that and its importance? 
Sure, Guernica is one of the, the greatest paintings ever, probably Picasso's greatest, and it's an example of a painting that's scandalized. Um, that was probably not Picasso's primary intention. His intention was to capture the devastation of an event in a way that was not naturalistic, but maybe better captured the feeling of it than a naturalistic or photographic painting would. So the painting is this enormous canvas that um, commemorates uh, an attack on the part of um, uh, fascists who uh, chose to target um, a town called Guernica, which was um, a Basque town that was not a military target. Um, and they attacked it on a market day to maximize civilian casualties. Um, and the, the painting depicts basically the firebombing of a, a market town that has no military rationale for attacking it at all. This was basically a terror tactic on the part of um, Franco's fascists um, in Spain. And um, what he did instead of, well, if you think about it, I use the term Brechtian, which sounds very fancy, but it doesn't have to be a scary term. Uh, Bertolt Brecht was a German playwright, and the term Brechtian is used to describe uh, a sort of approach to dealing with something very emotional. And one way to do that is to um, crank up the melodrama and try to be a real tearjerker, so to show people crying and dead bodies flying everywhere in a very realistic way. That's one approach to this. But what Brecht had said is, you know what, people often have a defensive reaction to that. It's so upsetting that they want to turn away. And it doesn't prompt them to action because they want to basically just distance themselves. They say, oh, isn't that terrible? And then look away. What Brecht did when, and when he talks about it, he was writing plays to basically make analogies about issues rather than showing them directly. Well, Guernica is painting that has a Brechtian approach. Picasso has, instead of doing a photorealistic painting, he's made one that's, that's cubist, that takes um, what look like cartoons or caricatures of people, some of them looking upset, but in an almost cartoonish way, and yet it is hugely moving and emotional. Um, and it was considered upsetting to people, but not in the sense that they have to look away, in a sense they want to look more closely. And it traveled the world. It was um, uh, a representative of the horrors of fascism and of targeting civilians, which is something that would happen, unfortunately, very often in the First and Second World Wars. Um, and it became really his his uh, a sort of battle flag that he did in a, an approach that you might say at first glance, well, that probably wouldn't work for me. But in fact, if you see it in person, it has this tremendous effect. Um, and it was scandalous. People were shocked by the fact that he didn't use a photorealist approach. Um, and there's a famous, possibly apocryphal story where um, uh, a German fascist um, during the Second World War um, encountered Picasso and said, um, Guernica, you did that, didn't you? And he turns to him and said, no, you did, meaning that the fascists did it. Um, and it was it's a really resonant story, but a painting that's been um, appropriated by people who have been devastated by war in all sorts of different contexts. So you don't have to have a direct connection to the event he's depicting. And that's one of the things that makes art great. It has a universality. It's like one of those pop songs on the radio, the really good ones where it's a love story and Bon Jovi's singing it, but you don't have to have had the same relationship he did to have it associated with any love story that you might have. 
Maybe that's not the high art example to give. No, but you universal. Guernica said at that state in the time, even before World War II, of the carpet bombing of innocent populations. And I think it was actually done by the Germans. It was a German regiment in alignment with Franco. And it really was a foreshadowing of things to come and a horrible uh, events in World War II. So a really important place and time by Picasso, who may not have seen, be seen as much as a political, uh, have a political impact from his art. That's right. I would say. And I mean, there's other really fascinating elements in the book too about the scandal. Kind of, can you talk about kind of the, the French painters and this whole sequence of what happens in the Salon des Refuses? Because I think it's really fascinating about how the scandal's art kind of changed uh, the French kind of painting culture. Yeah, well, for, for a very long time, academies um, controlled what art was considered good. Uh, the first academies rose up in the 16th century in Florence. Um, there was an academy in Bologna in the 17th century. And then if we fast forward a bit, what we're talking about um, is uh, in the 19th century primarily uh, and the end of the 18th century in, um, in Paris, which was the center of the art world at that time. The center shifted from Florence and Rome to Paris. And the academy is where you could study painting, but they would also run an annual salon and by salon, they mean not like a hair salon, but it was um, an exhibition of uh, works by contemporary artists, usually one per artist. And to be counted as one of the important artists at the time, you had to have a work in it. And they were very selective about what they would include. Um, and if you didn't work within the context of what they preached at the academy, your work was likely to be refused entry. And there were a couple of rival salons that were set up in order to um, protest um, the exclusion from the main one or the exclusivity of it. Um, one was created by Gustave Corbet, who was one of the most revolutionary and um, sort of antagonistic of the great French painters of the time. Um, uh, and another was set up by a group who would later become known as the Impressionists, um, but their work was in a very different style. The academic style looked back to Raphael um, most of the academies would point to Raphael as sort of the platonic ideal of what a painter should be, both in terms of personality. He was a very elegant gentleman. He was a member of court. He was very sophisticated. And the works he painted, um, which were the style that would be appropriated by academies moving forward. And they liked uh, what's um, a more naturalistic style. I use the word naturalistic to mean realistic. Sometimes it's confusing because there's a movement called realism. So that's why I'm saying naturalistic instead, basically paintings that look more like a photograph. Um, and they were very melodramatic. They were all about, you know, tear jerkers um, and noble um, battle scenes. And if you weren't painting those sort of things, then you were going to be sidelined. So some of these salons popped up. They would be at the same time as the main salon. And they would feature artists who were not accepted in the main salon or in principle didn't want to show there. Because one was the mainstream, the centrist, and these were the, the renegades of the time. Um, and the renegades of the time were not necessarily doing something political. Impressionist painters, impressionist painting, which is by far the most popular period in art history, the joke is there isn't a lot to study. You can study the lives of the painters. They're interesting, but the paintings themselves are incredibly beautiful, but they're basically just studies of how light falls at different times of day and in different settings. 
So there isn't a lot of depth to plumb in terms of the content of the paintings, but it was revolutionary at the time because painting things that were not history, portraits of famous people, mythology, biblical scenes was considered of less quality and less interest. So up they popped, and this is the era of lots of newspapers. And newspapers would print criticism and you'd have these critic wars among critics of um, this painter is great, this one is not, how dare they set up a rival salon. Um, but um, when we look back historically and in the case of some of the people living at the time, they said, you know what, really these um, rival salons like the Salon de Refusé are the ones that are featuring the better, edgier art. And from that point forward, to be called an academic painter was almost an insult. You could still train at the academy, but it meant that what you were doing was traditional, not particularly exciting or avant-garde, not at all edgy and safe. Right, and they almost, it seemed like they took on the name that refuses almost as a, a badge of honor. Like we did get refused. That's so well. right. Yeah. It literally means the salon of the people who were, were refused entry to the main salon. So yeah, they did consider it a badge of honor. And there's just so many important names there. Cezanne, Bizarro, uh, Whistler, and all this stuff. And also, you also kind of go in like Manet. He's like, go, moves away from this kind of neoclassicism and is painting kind of scandalous pictures of ordinary people and women, too, that, I mean, some of these paintings people would know if they saw them uh, but can you yeah, kind of talk about was, Monet was badass um, we don't associate him with that his style is more academic more traditional um, but he was painting things that were political in the sense not about politics and and um, presidents but in the sense of uh, sort of confronting his audience with a reality that nobody talked about and that was really the absolutely rampant and universal um, visiting of, uh, with prostitutes that took place. And prostitution was the thing nobody talked about, but was absolutely everywhere. And um, it was just not the done thing to talk about it. It was an open secret. And he um, confronted people with it by featuring paintings that were clear to the audience that they were about prostitutes, sometimes featuring prostitutes who were um, semi-celebrities. Uh, in Paris. Um, and one of them is Déjeuner sur l'air, the um, luncheon on the grass, which features a bunch of clothed men around it, a naked woman having a picnic. Um, and another is Olympia, which um, is a portrait of a high-end prostitute, very um, dramatically staring directly at the viewer. And presumably this is a male viewer who is the sort who would be one of her, her johns. And um, that was considered to be very scandalous at the time. Um, and that was that was where you there's a, a blurry line between scandal and shock. He wouldn't have made this and displayed it if he didn't think he was going to be provocative. But the scandal was probably blown up far beyond his expectations. And it's interesting, too, because those are scandals at the time. But you write those two works are considered the mo among the most important in the history of art and in any art history 101 class. So it's fascinating at that time, how those pieces that are very scandalous, we just kind of look at them like, okay, that's uh, that's one of the great ones. Um, and you kind of move on kind of through that. One of the interesting things uh, that I learned about was this whole uh, kind of modern to this to more modern stuff. You talk about Sebastian Horsley and Coons and some of these other figures, Hearst. Can you talk about the modern kind of 
approach of some of these people and their kind of uh, their scandals? Yeah, well, it, what, what's happened is from 1917 on, shock became the primary tactic for getting attention as an artist. And I say 1917 because it's a very specific case study that, that kicks it all off. Um, and it's a sculpture called Fountain um, that is uh, probably by Marcel Duchamp. He never took um, absolute credit for it. It was probably also um, co-conceived of um, by a Baroness who was a friend of his. But this is a work that is probably the one that if you think of modern art um, and think, oh, that's stupid, I could do that. This is the one you're thinking of. <laughs> so he bought an industrial urinal, turned it on its side, signed it with the name of a fake artist that's actually a joke about the name of the company he bought it from. Um, and it was presented as a great work of contemporary sculpture. And it took a while for him to get it accepted. At first, it was sort of laughed out of the room. But then it was accepted and it started this found object movement where he would take everyday objects, change them in some way to make them no longer functional in the way we expect and consider them uh, an artwork. Um, and to understand the context, it's useful to just briefly talk about what makes for good art or at least what was the traditional description. So during the Renaissance, the Renaissance means rebirth, and that term is about a rebirth of interest in the classical world, particularly ancient Athens. And so the uh, people interested in this stuff, the, the culture folks um, in the 15th century would look to see what the classical authors wrote about various things that interested them, including art. And so one of the things they looked to was Aristotle, whose book on poetics, talks about poetry and drama, but they appropriated that, these scholars in the 15th century, and applied it to, to contemporary art. And Aristotle says, in order to determine whether a work of art is good, um, successful, you have to ask three questions. And what I like about this is there's three questions that anyone can ask, and there's no real right or wrong answer. You should feel empowered to say that you like something or not based on these three questions. So the first one, is it good? And what he means by that is, is it well done? Does it successfully accomplish what the artist was trying to do? So if Keith Haring is trying to do a stick figure and does a stick figure, it's good. If he's trying to do a photorealistic portrait and it comes out as a stick figure, not good. Question two, is it beautiful? Now this is objective uh, or rather subjective, sorry. This is subjective, um, but it could not, it doesn't have to be just physical beauty. Do you think it's a beautiful painting or, or sculpture? It could be moral beauty. So you could have a beautiful, crucifixion painting that isn't aesthetically beautiful, but is morally uplifting. And then the third is, is it interesting? And that is the hardest one to answer. That's the one that requires the most context because it's usually interesting within the context of when it was made and who it was made for. And if we look at it in comparison to other works on a similar subject. But those three questions have traditionally been what's been applied to art and you can still apply them to traditional art like figurative painting today. But starting in 1917, Marcel Duchamp founded a revolution. And that revolution said that art no longer has to be good, well done exhibiting artistic skill. It no longer has to be beautiful. It only has to be interesting. Right. And by interesting, he would have said provocative. It should shift you out of whatever you're feeling when you see it. If that reaction is outrage because you think this is stupid, then he would still say it's successful. And their art splits. 
we still have the traditional, good, beautiful, interesting, but we also have this conceptual avenue where art is only has to be interesting. And it's up to you whether you <laughs> like that. I personally like the, um, the traditional stuff better, but um, I understand and appreciate the conceptual angle. And so when we get to the 20th century, this is the roundabout answer to your question, um, we get a lot of artists who are focusing on concept and shock and trying to stir people out of their everyday torpor. And you get examples like Sebastian Horsley, who did a creative artwork where he literally volunteered to be crucified. Um, and that was it. That was the artwork. And you might think to yourself, gee, but that's really stupid. What a terrible idea. Um, I would say that too, but I understand what he was trying to do. He wants people to be like, oh my God, are you serious? Um, Chris Burden um, had a friend shoot him with a rifle and that was his conceptual performance artwork. Again, you might say that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but that's, that's part of their shtick. Right, so you have these guys doing this, the birth of performance art, but it's interesting about Duchamp because he was a very accomplished cubist. So he had written one, like one of one of the masterworks is what uh, new descending a staircase is. People know that picture, but so then he also branches off into a real kind of the beginning, like you said, of this kind of new view of art that is the really the seed of a kind of modern art movement. And uh, some of these things really generate a lot of scandal, a lot of shock, and a lot of money. There's a lot of money in some of these strange, unstandard un artworks, correct? Absolutely. And, you know, now, even today, these, um, the, the conceptual art is really considered the most avant-garde. That's, that's the thing that people talk about most. There's always going to be an audience for traditional art, but it tends not to get much press. And that is part of the reason why um, the, the shock side of things um, is really resonant. Part of the problem is that simply too much information out there and it's very hard to get attention and one of the ways to get attention for yourself is to do something that is shocking that people talk about um, whether or not that means the art is good is another question i have a one one um squirm worthy story in the book that you may remember where there's an artist uh, a russian artist who as a, a a performance and as a political statement um nailed his scrotum to the cobbles on Red Square in Moscow. Again, not recommended to try that at home. <laughs> and it made international headlines because people were shocked by it. But is it a good work of art? I would say no. I think it's it, it has no content to it. It's merely a shocking act. Um, and that's where, where it comes a question and that maybe each of you can answer on your own, whether you think it's shocking and it's a good work of art, or is it merely shocking? And I think too often younger artists um, in this era think that getting attention, particularly through videos on social media, is the mark of their quality. But it's really just the mark of their PR prowess, which has nothing to do with what they're creating. They're what they're creating may be great or not, but um, ideally the best pieces, the cream will rise to the surface. But these days the shock is almost the first thing that people think of, how am I gonna get attention for myself? Okay, this is how, now what am I gonna make that I want people to pay attention to? And it should really be in reverse order. 
All right, so you see all this shocking in the performance art. You mentioned Marina Abramovich. Uh, you actually have kind of an interesting story about the Trump cracker in Slovenia. Can you talk about that amusing story? Yeah. That was... That's a funny story, and that's the one that, that is probably a surprise because uh, I'm, I'm writing about like Michelangelo and Caravaggio, and then um, uh, this is actually a buddy of mine, Tomasz Schlegel, who is a, a local Slovenian architect. He's also a conceptual artist, and he, I remember he got the concept of this while he was on holiday. And then he came and he was sitting on my porch, chain smoking and, uh, and telling me and my wife about this crazy idea he had. And I thought that's a cool, crazy idea, but I never thought he would do it. And then the local, it, it's very charming. So I, for those of you who don't know, I live in the Alps in Slovenia um, and it's very rural. It looks like the end of the sound of music. It's a very beautiful, a central Europe in the mountains. And so in a village nearby where he lives, the local cultural society, which consists of just a couple guys who hang out and, and like listen to music and whatnot, they decide to actually make this happen. And his concept was to create a hollow but very large wooden sculpture um, that was basically making fun of Trump and making and using Trump as an example for populists who he objected to, right-wing populists. Um, and he was gonna uh, set it up um, in the village, and it was going to be a local tourist attraction. And he didn't think anything would happen, but then the cultural society said, you know what, we're going to actually make this. And they made it themselves. They got all the, the equipment. Um, nobody paid for anything. It was just a homemade operation. And um, I'm partially to blame for it, it making the news. I actually heard about it and then submitted a pitch to an editor at the Washington Post. Do I, they want me to write about it. And they didn't write back, but a different writer um, published an article the next day about it. So I'm not sure if they already had a hint of it or if it's my fault, but it was on the Washington Post. And then the next day, it was on the front page of just about every publication you could imagine, like the world over. I'm not kidding. This was like, this is 15 minutes of fame by definition. It was two days and then, then it had passed. But he was, Tomaj was getting calls from Finland, Japan. Um, it was it was pretty insane. And so people thought it was interesting because it was a Slovenian making fun of Trump. Um, there was also um, there's a, a famously ugly statue of Mrs. Trump that was commissioned by an American artist and is in her hometown because she's from Slovenia. And so it had this little resonance to it. Um, but it was built and it became this this amazing attraction. And then it was attracting too much attention and the locals got very nervous. <laughs> And was afraid that we would somehow get bombed or something like that, um, and uh, and they they had to take it down. And then there were various other places that said, "Well, we want it because they knew the tourists would want to come and see it." Um, and and then there was actually uh, an interesting story that I think would make a good book. Probably there was a, a shifting of the statue to a town where the mayor was very excited to feature it and it would be a tourist attraction. And then it mysteriously burned down at about the same time that somebody burned down the statue of Melania Trump on the other side of Slovenia. So we have a double arson. And the question is, um, you know, is the arsonist pro-Trump and didn't like that he was being made fun of? or anti-Trump and was trying to sort of burn him in effigy? Or does it have nothing to do with it? It's a kind of an intriguing question. So this is one of well, the random uh, stories in the book. Well, it ties into uh, interesting parts of your, of your background because it's an arch crime 
it's a destruction of value and it's about interpretation of what you're seeing yeah. and how it changes. I mean, how does people, it's just a funny kind of, there's a picture of it in your book. And by yeah. the way, the book is really well laid out, very artfully laid out as an art book should. It was really a beautifully uh, put together book. So I, uh, I appreciate that. But uh, do you mind taking a few questions? Of course. I'm okay, welcome. Cool. We're at about 35 minutes. Um, Jolly asked, were the shock tactics deployed to artists trying to secure patronage or just people being people with their inherent flaws? That's a great question. So um, in the 20th century, shock tactics are employed really to get attention and through attention to get a following. And um, artists who you've heard of will have works that are more valuable than artists you haven't heard of, regardless of the quality of the art. So the name recognition is very important. That's really more of a 20th century phenomenon. Um, Caravaggio actually employed what I would call shock tactics intentionally, and this may be a, a, a circuitous answer to your question. There's some evidence that he was intentionally creating works um, that were termed indecorous. That's the term um, in Italian that would have been used. And he was commissioned to create altarpieces by churches. But when he created them, he created works that didn't look the way the commissioners expected them to. So just a little bit of context, he was working uh, circa 1600 in Rome. And in the middle of the 16th century, we have a series of meetings called the Council of Trent, which were basically emergency meetings run by the Catholic Church to figure out how to deal with Protestantism. And some of the things they came up with was how to use art in order to bring people back to Catholicism or to make the experience of prayer and meditation for Catholics more vivid. Because one of the accusations of Protestants is that it's all very cerebral and distant and, and you, your relationship with God is through the church and a priest, not direct, and that this was problematic. So one of the things they encouraged is when you're meditating, you either imagine yourself back in biblical times, or you picture a biblical scene transposed to the present day to make it more vivid. And this is what Caravaggio was painting in many of his works. We have biblical scenes, but people are wearing what the clothes that people would wear when Caravaggio was walking around Rome circa 1600. And that was following the word of the Council of Trent, but he was the first one to do that. People hadn't seen that before. It was almost taking the, the, the new um, expectations so literally that it shocked people. But he may have done this on purpose because there are a number of his works that were commissioned by a church. He was paid an advance for them. He created the paintings. They were rejected by the church and he sold them on to a private collector for much more money. And there, it's not certain, but there's a, a reasonable uh, assumption that he did this on purpose and more than once. So sometimes shock tactics can be used to your advantage. Right, they're very clever. But I mean, so he is making sure he gets the financing and deliver, probably deliberately skewed it so he could make more yeah. money on the side. Very clever. Yeah, so really fascinating book. Really loved reading the book. Um, is there anything you'd like to add or anything I'd miss before we wrap this up? Um, no, I, I'm delighted to, to have such a great interview. As, as I told William before, I get invited on, on quite a lot of shows where, where it's clear that the interviewer hasn't read anything and isn't quite sure who I am. So <laughs> this is really refreshing. Maybe the only other thing I'd mention is if there are any um, aspiring artists in the audience. I have a second book that's also out with the same publisher at the same time. Um, the publisher is Roman and Littlefield, and it's called Making It, 
The Artist's Survival Guide. And I wrote it with my best friend who's a conceptual artist named Yasha. And it's a behind the scenes tour of what it's like to be an artist today with lots of um, information about how to become a successful artist and um, answering lots of the questions that people are afraid to ask. And anyone who's an aspiring artist, I think would find it interesting and hopefully useful. So I point you to that as well. Awesome. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. I'll put a link to that book, a link to this book right here, Devil in the Gallery. And uh, we didn't even get to the rivalry section. There's a lot more to this book, guys. There's a lot of pictures. So a lot of stuff we talked about, you can see representations in the art through this book. So get this book. Again, the title is Devil in the Gallery, How Scandal, Shock, and Rivalry Shaped the Art World, published September 15, 2021 by Dr. Noah Charney. So Noah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great one. All right. Take care. Stay there. Stay there. Okay. So that's the end of